Most of us know to rehearse before a big presentation, but how you practice makes a big difference on whether you just feel more prepared or actually are. On this episode, how to rehearse so you do better. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 645. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders are born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the regular conversations that leaders are having are, of course, formal ones. Presentations. Presentations are such a key part of the work that leaders do in communicating messages of interacting with employees, stakeholders, customers, other leaders in industry. And it's something that to some extent we all do at a somewhat regular basis. And yet many of us struggle with presentations. Today, a bit of a primer on how to really tackle a key component of presenting well, which is how to rehearse. And I'm so glad to welcome someone who's so gifted at this is going to help us to do a better job at rehearsing so that we can really show up in the way we want to when the time is right. I'm so pleased to welcome back to the show Jacqueline Farrington. She has over 20 years experience as a change maker, empowering leaders and their teams to spark transformation and innovation through communications. Known for her direct yet supportive and science-backed approach, Jacqueline works with senior and board-level leaders as the founder and president of Farrington Partners. She blends her experience in the performing arts, vocal pedagogy, communications, psychology, and organizational and executive coaching to help her clients find unique communication solutions. Her clients include multinationals such as Amazon and Microsoft, as well as startups and nonprofits. She proudly served for many years as TEDx Seattle's senior speaking coach, where she sourced, vetted, and prepared speakers for yearly sold-out audiences. She was thrilled to see several speakers from that event move on to the global TED stage. In addition to teaching at Yale, she has lectured and taught at the London Business School, Rutgers University, and Imperial College. Jacqueline is the author of The Non-Obvious Guide to Better Presentations, How to Present Like a Pro, Virtually or in Person. Jacqueline, what a pleasure to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me back. It's been a minute. It's been eight years <laughs> since you were on the show. And we've had so many people over that time who have picked up our prior conversation on organizational change. And just in the last week or two, someone had reached out to me. So thank you for coming back after all this time. And we cannot let another eight years go by because there's so much for us to talk about in this conversation on presenting well through rehearsing. And you and I have done a bunch of this over the years. And I know that we're both aligned that a presentation is actually a performance. But I think a lot of times people don't think about that. What is it about a presentation that really does make it a performance? It's an elevated form of of communication. So you're not sitting around after dinner with a glass of wine shooting the breeze with with your friends or or your family, it's intentional and strategic communication. And because of that, it requires an elevated commitment on the part of the speaker. 
commitment in terms of how you use your body, how you use your voice, and then certainly your words, the, the content of your speech, and mentally how you commit to that. It requires that you be 100, if not 120%, if, if, if that's possible, present in, in the room. Yeah. And it's, I mentioned the presentation as a performance because I don't think anyone would question the value of rehearsal before performance, not only the value of it, but doing it multiple times and making sure that, especially for something high visibility, that the performance went well. And yet, we don't really think to do that a lot of times for presentations. Or if we do, we do something that's really small or light, but it's not really the kind of rehearsal that helps to really make us better presenters, is it? That's so true. I Over the years, I have seen leaders and their teams spend not just hours, but sometimes months on crafting their content, their, their words, and thinking about their stakeholders and how those words will land with their stakeholders. And then they they think about how they deliver those words, maybe a, right before, a week before they go on, or even a couple of days or the day of that they, they go on to, to communicate that. And so they end up destroying their, their message. Their message doesn't land in the way they intended it to. And, and often they're puzzled by this because it hasn't connected with their audience and what their audience needs, both in terms of content, but also what they need on an emotional level. You write in the book, great presenters deliver content like it's flowing fresh from their brain. They look relaxed and natural and unrehearsed because they have practice over and over and over and over again. And I, I love that line because I think that it highlights something that is often counterintuitive to a lot of leaders of, we think if we practice something and we rehearse it well, that we're going to end up sounding rote or like automatons. And and yet the opposite is really true, isn't it? Yeah. I, I like to use the analogy of learning to drive a car. And if you, if you think about if it, when I first learned to drive, and I learned on a manual, so stick shift, if I had to think as I was careening down the highway, if I had to think about where's the clutch, where's the brake, what am I doing, where's the, the stick shift, I would miss all the scenery unfolding in front of me and, and around me. Not only would I miss that scenery, but I wouldn't be able to make executive decisions like, oh, that looks pretty. Let's stop and, and check out that area. Or look at, that looks like a great restaurant. Let's take a turn here. Or even should I take a turn here? And the same thing happens with our brains when we rehearse or when we don't rehearse. Let's let's take for a moment if we don't rehearse. If I haven't rehearsed and I have to stand up on stage and I have to think about connecting with this audience but I also have to think about where am I standing? What am I doing with my hands? What comes next in my slides? If I'm managing my slides, should I should I progress my slides forward now or, or should I wait? Which words should I emphasize and how should I emphasize them? Should I slow down? Should I speed up? Should I use loud volume, speak softly? Cognitive overload. <laughs> my brain cannot function thinking about all of that. And as a result, 
I can't really connect with my audience. And I think sometimes more importantly, I can't make an executive decision if something is not going the way I want it to go. I can't make that decision to course correct because I'm just on cognitive overload. Whereas if I've rehearsed, I've committed so many of those questions. I've answered those questions. I've committed them to long-term memory, much the same as as when we learn to drive. The way that I drive, that's committed to long-term memory. I don't have to think about it when I get in the car to drive so I can focus on other things. That's where we want all of those questions to be answered and commit to long-term memory so that our working memory and our attention can take over in the room and then we can connect with the audience and actually course correct or deliver something slightly differently than we have in the past or even skip some content because we're running over. You mentioned also uh, in the book that rehearsing frees you to communicate not just to recite. What's the distinction between communication and reciting? Well, if I go back to rehearsal on, on this. If, if you think about what, what we call maintenance rehearsal versus elaborative rehearsal. So maintenance rehearsal is what we do when we're trying to memorize a telephone number. 425-392-7287. And we, we keep repeating that until we actually have to make the call. And there's nothing, there's no intent, there's no emotion connected to that. We're just memorizing it by rote, which is a lot more difficult, by the way, than if we engage in elaborative rehearsal, which is connecting meaning and emotion and even even physical movement to the, the words that we're speaking, makes it easier to remember those words but then it also, of course, makes it come alive for the audience. Yeah, it's it's a more genuine way of showing up, right? And by knowing your material really well, it allows you to adapt and change up in the moment, which leads to one of the practical tools that you talk about, which, by the way, there's so many in the book, I've had a hard time zeroing in on what we talk about, <laughs> because there's so many things to say about this. I mean, every page of the book, there's like, oh, I was highlighting like crazy of like things that are so helpful for presenters to think and do. And one of the invitations you make around this is the invitation to internalize, but not to memorize. Tell me about that distinction. It it goes back to your speaking by rote. And and you can often tell when a speaker is speaking by rote because their eyes will be kind of glazed over. And in fact, in their mind's eye, in their brain, they're usually seeing a picture of that script and they're just reading that picture of of the script, as opposed to thinking about how is my message landing with my audience in order for my audience to hear my message. And most of the time leaders want their audiences to act on their message. So in order for my audience to act on this message, how do I need to make them feel? And rote is the opposite. Rote removes the emotion, it removes the intention. And so most of the time when we're speaking from rote, our audience is is just going to tune out because they'll be bored to tears. They won't see the relevance of those words for them, as opposed to when we're really trying to communicate where communication is much like a game of catch and we're we're throwing a ball to our audience and they're 
throwing a ball back to us, even though they're not saying anything, they're still responding. Mm. And, and so we're able to check in and see how is that landing with our audience? And is it landing in the way that I intended it to land? There's so many wonderful tactical things that almost anyone can do to begin rehearsing more effectively, to really have a presentation that lands. And I thought we'd dive in on a few of them that I think are just really great and and things I've seen work for many people and I've used myself. And one of them is there's an invitation from you to, when you're thinking about like wanting to hit all your points in a presentation, to use a memory palace I'm wondering if you could describe what that is and for the folks who haven't heard that term and how would you use it in order to really present well? Yeah, it's it's this idea of, of creating a, a structure. And in my case, it's usually my house to help you internalize the the journey, the path of your presentation. And so you, you can do the same thing with, with a, a, a road, if you will, that if I think about my house... If I enter the the front door, that that might be my introduction. And then I move to my living room and that might be my my first talking point. So let's say that in my introduction, I want to make my audience feel special, warm, welcomed. Well, that actually links for me to coming in my front door. That's how I want people to feel when they come into my house. And then as I move into my first talking point, I want people to feel curious or intrigued. And that's interesting because in my living room, I have this amazing, huge, takes up the whole wall of my living room photograph that that my, my husband's a photographer that he, he took down in Mexico. And people always ask about it. Uh-huh. So I start to attach that journey to either some of the things in that room or the, the journey from room to room. And that then helps me internalize the the journey of my presentation so that when I get to performance day, if for whatever reason, let's say somebody comes up to me right before I'm to go out on stage and they say, hey, all the speakers before you have run over. So you need to cut your 30-minute presentation down to seven minutes. Well, because I've created that memory palace, that memory house, and I know it so well, I can say to myself, okay, I'm actually going to come in through the side door (laughs) and then I'm going to go to my living room and then I'm going to go to my kitchen before I exit. And that's going to give me an abbreviated version of my presentation. Yeah. So you decide like, okay, I'm going to spend a little less time in each room or maybe skip a couple of rooms entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love the the fact of like thinking about something you already know well, like a physical space, like your home, for example, and and each major point is a different stop along the room, and you are mentally as you're as you're rehearsing, as you're presenting, you're thinking, okay, I'm walking in the front door, I'm walking to the living room, I'm going up the stairs, and you're taking the audience on that journey, and you are reminding yourself of your points along the way because you know those so well. Versus I have to look down at my notes the whole time or I have to go and read the slides to people because it just it allows you to stay in the moment. It's such a great, it's such a great strategy to be able to really stay present and to your point, adapt, because doesn't that happen all the time? Someone says it's happened to me so many times. <laughs> you had 30 minutes, but really you only got 12 now that so and so went over. So good luck. <laughs> because it yeah. you've got to be able to adapt. Yes. And by the way, I, I always recommend that people have 
the longest version of their talk. And then the, so if you have a 30 minute talk, a 30 minute version, and then you have a 15 minute, and then you have a 10 minute, and maybe you have a five minute and you have those versions in your back pocket just in case. Yeah. Well, and that leads to one of your points around rehearsal, which is don't just rehearse in the most pristine ideal situation you can imagine. You actually want to create stress for yourself when you're doing rehearsal. What does that look like and what's the benefit of doing that? Yeah. Not only do you want to create stress, you want to create failure. And and if you think about top performing athletes, they're, they they and their coaches do this. They build failure into practice so that they teach the brain, hey, I failed. I made a mistake, but I survived. It's okay. I, I got up and I, I recovered. And so by introducing stress into rehearsals, you're teaching the brain that I can function. I can function at a very high level, in fact, when I'm under stress. And then introducing failure, you're teaching the brain if I fail, it's okay. I know how to recover. I've I've got a plan. And even, even though you can't anticipate everything that might make you quote unquote fail, it still primes the brain for being able to more effectively manage that when it happens. So some ways to introduce stress, it doesn't have to be the exact stress that you'll have on the on the day, because our brains can generalize that that learning. So for example, you could say to yourself, I'm going to get through my talk as fast as I can without missing any moments. Guarantee when you try to do that, you will you will screw up. You will make some mistakes, but that's okay. That's that's what you want. Or asking some some friends, family members, colleagues to be the the worst audience, your nightmare audience, and to not only throw difficult questions your way, but to also throw challenges, disagreements, or maybe sometimes when I bring in actors to act as a nightmare audience or or colleagues, I'll have them start a fight between two audience members. Oh, wow. Yeah. So anything that introduces your nightmare scenario teaches the brain to deal with that stress. Yeah. And the Going right along with this, there's the advice to flip the negative, and you point out sports coaches know a powerful tool to transform mistakes, thinking positively immediately after an error or a failure. So tell me what that sounds like. Like you you, you set up the situation, you introduce stress, you, you surface failures during the presentation. What's that? What's, what's the next of flipping the negative? Well, normally when people make mistakes when they're rehearsing, especially if it's in front of any kind of an audience, or even if they just have their video camera going, they immediately go, oh, oh, I screwed up. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, and they they beat themselves up for it. And instead of you flip the switch on that and say, oh, I screwed up. That's good. That's good. I taught myself how to deal with it. Uh... And, and then take a moment and rather than take some breath in, just blow out some breath, let go of the breath, and then ask themselves, okay, so so how do I do this? What? How do I get out of this? So I'll give you an example on that. Please? I usually early on ask someone to get off their script as quickly as they can. And, and I'll do what's called be on book for them, meaning I'll follow along in their script. And if they get into trouble, they ask for it and I'll feed them a few lines. Well, that is 
painful. (laughs) Nobody likes it, including myself. But what I found is that if I let a speaker struggle with that a little bit, and if they forget what they're saying, or they say, say the wrong thing, and rather than me rushing in with the script and helping them, I give them the choice to call for the line when they want to. Usually they forget to call for line and they sit there and they struggle with the mistake. And if I let them struggle with it for a little bit, they start to figure out how to recover in that moment. So they, they've learned two things then. One, they've learned what to do when that happens on performance day. And two, they've taught themselves that I can fail and I've got the efficacy to deal with it. Yeah. I remember when I was a Carnegie instructor that we would do a lot of, as you just described, we would do a lot of coaching in the moment as people were presenting. And sometimes I'd get pushback from a client who would say, like, I could do the presentation if you would just stop interrupting me. (laughs) (laughs) And we'd laugh about it. And then we'd have, we'd end up having a conversation about it. And we'd say, well, yeah, because that never happens in real life, right? Because <laughs> the vice president never interrupts you during the middle of the conversation or the customer never like shows up late. And and we'd end up having a fun conversation about it. Like Part of the value here is like actually getting used to that, like getting used to getting thrown off your game or losing your balance. Because once you've done that a few times and you realize, okay, like you said, you struggle with it, but you realize like, okay, I can recover from that. Then when it actually does happen in the real scenario, then it's just not as big a deal. Like if you've done it six or seven times already and you've had success with it, it's like, eh, okay, this is just how this is just how the world works. Things are gonna happen. People are gonna interrupt. People are gonna be rude occasionally. I'm here to like you said, it's it's that that catch. It's like responding to the audience and then moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, I also think it makes people more creative because it it helps them get over their fear of failure, which then, of course, opens up the the opportunity to explore and to take risks. And then that becomes fun in rehearsal when you see people going, you know what? I I don't care if I fail. In fact, I'm going to actively try to fail. You start to see them blow the roof off of creativity. Yeah, indeed. And and speaking of rehearsing, one of the most common ways I see people quote unquote rehearse is it's the day before the presentation, or maybe it's even the hour before, and they're kind of standing or even sitting down by themselves in front of a computer screen or a piece of paper, and they're kind of mumbling to themselves their presentation points. Like they'll, they'll sit there in front of the page and like, oh my, I'm gonna go, okay, I'm gonna do number point two, and they'll sit there and kind of mumble to themselves. And I have done it too, by the way. <laughs> so uh, this is me coaching myself. You invite us to rehearse physically. What's different about rehearsing physically, and what's the value of doing that versus just kind of like mumbling to yourself? Mm, yeah. Well, again, it goes back to that I mentioned earlier, that elaborative rehearsal. So we know that when we when we start to connect those words with some kind of meaning, whether the meaning is emotion or the meaning is past experiences or the meaning is what I'm doing physically, then we start to own that content because it's committing to our non-conscious brain or 
our long-term memory. So really important that you, you stand up, you are speaking, you read aloud. Often people write brilliant copy that's meant to be read and not spoken. And then they, they hear it out loud and think, oh, no, this doesn't work. And so a bunch of rewrites then have to happen. So speaking it out loud, moving with it. And here's the other thing about the, the repetition of, of doing that, that rehearsal. Lots of studies that have looked at how people learn, and, and I find this so fascinating. If you take a group of people who have to learn some, some content, and they are all going to get five hours of rehearsal, and you ask one group to rehearse for five hours the day before they have to deliver that content, but then you ask the other group to rehearse one hour a day for five days. That's the group that is going to perform better. That's the group that's going to remember the content and have greater control over the, the content. So it's not just the standing up, speaking aloud, doing it, because I often see leaders will leave it until the day before a performance and then try to cram that rehearsal in and thinking about how am I, how am I speaking? What am I doing? And that's not going to work. It's better to have smaller chunks of rehearsal spread out over time so that you get the repetition of of rehearsal in that content. Indeed. I've seen the exact same thing in my experience. The, the folks who leave it to the last minute really not only does it create more stress, but don't nearly have the success of someone who's been doing the it through the lens of consistency over intensity, right? Like consistency leading up to a major presentation or a major event. And 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 speaking of doing that well, you do invite us to watch ourselves, watch ourselves rehearsing. And video is a great tool for doing that. And 15, 20 years ago, that was a lot harder. But today it's pretty easy to do that. And I, I know I know it's hard sometimes for folks to watch for us to watch ourselves on video. What's the value of it? And then where to start with it If, if for someone who hasn't done that before? Well, as you said, it, it's so easy to just turn on if you're using Zoom or many of the, the video conferencing platforms, just hit the record button and record yourself. And it's interesting that that video camera creates that stress that we were talking about earlier. Just having the the camera on can create enough of a stress level for, for people to, to feel that. In terms of how to do it as well, then then you want to watch it. And why that's important rather than watching yourself in a mirror, and I know I've met many people over the years who watch themselves in front of a mirror, watching a recording of yourself creates some detachment it, so that it helps you. Now, yes, it's really hard. And yes, it's painful, including myself. Years of watching myself on video, it's not fun. But watching yourself on video creates some emotional detachment so that you can then make some decisions around, oh, what worked there? I want to keep that. That's great. Oh, I didn't realize I was doing that. And I want to work to stop that. So it's almost as if watching on video creates a sense of watching a stranger. And in fact, I I ask people to pretend the first time they watch themselves, you don't know this person. And if you didn't know this person, what would you see them doing that really would work for you as an audience member and land well on you? And what do you see them doing that is not working? 
Yeah, it, it's really huge. I use Loom for sending video messages out to members in our community and for recording mini courses and content. And I record myself probably multiple times a day. And it's interesting, like I can plan it all out, but once I actually do the recording and then watch it, all of a sudden the stuff surfaces that I didn't see in the original copy or the bullet points. I was like, oh, that doesn't really land well. And I'll watch it. And I'll sometimes do two or three takes of it. And then that's actually part of my creative process of like, okay, I feel like, by the way, I don't do this for like messages just to one person usually, but if it's if it's something that's going to go to a large group of people, I will, I'll do a few recordings of it. I'll watch it. I'll kind of use that to refine it. And there's something about the recording light being on that's, that's like, okay, <laughs> it's showtime. And yeah. then once I do that, then inevitably that surfaces the stuff. Like you said, it creates a level of stress. And that surfaces it, and almost always, I find when I do one of those, I'm three or four or five takes in, and I just see that as part of the process of creation. And you could do it on an iPhone or any smartphone, right? Just like record yourself and then just watch it. And yeah, it's really painful the first few times you do that if you've never done it before. But boy, you see stuff. And I love your invitation too, to just think about it as a third party. Like, okay, if I was going to give this person some advice this person I just watched on video who, yes, is me. But if I was going to give this person some advice, what would be the one thing I change? And then you can go back and redo it. And that's the beauty of it. Yeah. Yeah. If you were to coach that person, how would you coach them? Yeah. But don't do it in front of a mirror. So that's that. I see a lot of people do that. And that actually, because that's happening in real time as you're doing it, it makes most people really self-conscious and in fact, stiff. And you can't go back and watch it later. Yeah. You don't have the objectivity that's created when you watch a video. Yeah. 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 It, fascinating. Speaking of going back later, one of the things you also suggest in rehearsing in so much of our presentations these days, whether it's in person or online, there's always a technical component of it. There's slides, there's lighting, there's sound, especially online, right? It's entirely built around that. Mastering the technical part of the rehearsal is key too. practicing with that. Where do you see people go wrong when they haven't thought about the technical piece? Ooh, well, it depends how complex technically their presentation is. For example, if someone is running a, a poll, get in there and run that poll. If you're if you're using a, a platform like Slido, run that poll several times so that before you go in by the way, I should say before, before the performance in rehearsal yeah, so that you don't have to think about it. It's, it's seamless because things like that can derail an otherwise amazing performance because you're, you just start to get flustered with it and have a plan. That's the other thing I, I, I talk about in another part of the book is plan for things to go wrong because they will inevitably something will go wrong and you can never anticipate everything that will go wrong but when you plan for it in advance again you're priming the brain to deal with curveballs and that means you'll be better equipped to deal with them when when they come up and you'll have more confidence in dealing with them when they come up so I have two invitations for everyone. One is to grab the book. If you do any kind of presentations at any regularity, a couple of times a year, whether it's virtual or in person, if for nothing else, grab the book, pull up this section, rehearsal, and pick one or two things 
that you would put into practice in your presentation planning in the rehearsal part. This is the part that a lot of us drop the ball on. You know, we plan out the slides, we plan the content. As you said, Jacqueline, like sometimes we'll spend months on the content and then 10 minutes rehearsing it. And we need to do more, especially for high visibility presentations. So I'd invite folks to do that. And then secondly, Jacqueline and I would love to hear what did you try and what happened as you started rehearsing. So I hope you'll connect with Jacqueline on LinkedIn and send both of us a note and let us know on LinkedIn, okay, uh, I tried this and here's what happened as I tried it. We would love to hear because you know, our our goal is to get everyone doing a better job of rehearsing. And if we're doing that, that's <laughs> that's a win for everyone. So let me ask you one last question, Jacqueline. Uh, you know, so many of us are learning and we're we're growing and we're changing our minds on things. As you've written this book, having had all the experience as a professional actress, as a coach, as done so much work helping leaders to communicate better. As you went through the book and over the last year or two, what's something that you've changed your mind on? I have changed my mind on fillers. Those words that we put either at the beginnings of sentences, I just, I guess, I think, or in the middle, um, like, you know, or at the end called qualifiers, things like right. Yeah. I've changed mm. my mind on those. Huh? How so? <laughs> well, there, there's relatively new research that shows that when we, when we use fillers, we're perceived as more honest, more relatable, more human and more authentic. And it's funny because over the years, I've seen people get really in their heads around fillers. I, not too long ago, had a conversation with a new client and she said, oh, I, I really need to work with you because my my boss gave me this feedback that in a 20-minute sales call with a new client, I used six ums. <laughs> mm. And I thought, that's actually not that bad. And but she was so in her head about it and, and really beating herself up for having used the, these ums because it had been communicated to her that that was bad. And and yet the interesting research around the that the CIA did around lying and found that when people are lying, they have fewer fillers because they've memorized the the lie. Whereas when <sighs> when people are telling the truth, they have more. However, that said, fillers can take over a, a message for, for sure. And, and so it's, you know, it's finding that balance of do you have a few or are you filling your, your speech to where it makes it difficult for people to understand what you're saying? Jacqueline Farrington is the author of The Non-Obvious Guide to Better Presentations, How to Present Like a Pro Virtually or In Person. Jacqueline, thank you so much for your support for all of us. Oh, Dave, such a pleasure to be back on. Thank you for having me. If this conversation was helpful for you, a few related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 245, How to Engage with Humor. David Nihil was my guest on that episode. We talked about that delicate and important skill of being able to use humor. Of course, we all recognize it when it's done well. We've all also seen it go poorly. David has some wonderful and really practical advice on how to use humor well 
and some really useful, simple tactics that almost any of us can put into practice right away that'll help us to use humor in a more effective way. Episode 245 for that. I'd also recommend episode 450, The Way to Influence Executives. Nancy Duarte was my guest on that episode. We had a conversation about if you're presenting to an executive or an executive audience specifically, what are some things that you need to have in your mind and need to know tactically as far as how to interact with that audience. We walk through some of the key things that she's seen, some wonderful practical advice in that conversation, episode 450. And then, of course, I'd recommend episode 518, The Way to Make Sense to Others. Tom Henschel was my guest on that episode, host of the Look and Sound of Leadership podcast. Tom, a seasoned executive coach and professional who has been teaching leaders how to present and communicate so well for many decades. In that conversation, we talk about his method for sorting and labeling and how to be able to create clarity in your own mind about what you're saying in a way that also creates clarity for your audience. So many of you told me that conversation was useful and use Tom's sorting and labeling skills all the time. Bonnie and I regularly talk about that model and use it in our own communications, episode 518 for that. And then finally, I aired a Dave's Journal episode a while back called Three Better Ways to Start a Presentation. Like you, I've heard the advice many times over the years of if you're given a presentation, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. I think that's okay advice if you've never given a presentation before and you're starting from square one, but most leaders and professionals need to move way beyond that advice. And in that episode, I talk about what are three ways to do a lot better at being able to start a presentation, all of that in that episode as well. All of those links, of course, will be in the episode notes. And if you haven't already, I'm inviting you to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com because if you set up your free membership, it's not only going to give you access to all of the benefits inside, but it's going to allow you to search all of the past episodes by topics. If you're looking for more on presentation skills, set up your free membership, go over to the episode library, and you can find the dropdown for presentation skills. I have aired dozens of episodes over the years on this topic to help you to move forward, including the ones I already mentioned, to help you move forward and do a better job as a presenter. It is one of several dozen topic areas that are inside of the free membership episode library. You can search all of the past episodes by topic. It's just one of the many benefits inside a free membership. Go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. You'll be right there along with us on being able to utilize all of those resources. And if you've been a free member for a bit and you've utilized those resources, I'd invite you to learn more about Coaching for Leaders Plus. One thing I'm doing each month is writing a long-form article that answers a very specific question for you to help you to integrate things you've heard on the podcast, my own practice, the experience of our members, and bringing them together to be a guide for you. It's one of the key benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. If you'd like to find out more about Coaching for Leaders Plus, just go to Coaching for Leaders dot plus for a lot more. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Smith. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Jim Harder back to the show. He's chief scientist at Gallup, and he's going to be returning to share the most recent data Gallup is collecting about how hybrid and remote work is playing out for all of us. And also, perhaps just as importantly, the questions you can begin asking in order to decide what's next 
for how folks are working in your organization. Join me for that conversation with Jim, and I hope you have a great week. Take care.